I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing the impact of China's authoritarian system on its emergence as a great power. Over the past 30 years, China's economy and society have undergone massive changes, and currently, it has increasingly risen as a world power. The one-party political system, however, has remained unchanged. A new book called End of an Era, How China's Authoritarian Revival is Undermining Its Rise, written by Carl Minzner, argues that the stagnant government system is pushing the country towards a dangerous precipice as the positive changes of its reform era are slowly erased. So I'm very pleased to welcome the author of that book, Carl Minzner, and he is a professor at Fordham Law School and an expert in Chinese law and governance. Welcome to the China Power Podcast. Thank you so much. So in your book, you argue that China's reform and opening up era is ending. Can you start by providing us a brief overview of your argument? When did this trend begin? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Uh, China's post-1978 reform era was marked by three key trends. Economically, rapid growth. Ideologically, a certain degree of openness to the outside world. And politically, relative stability, marked by the development of partially institutionalized norms and practices, such as collective leadership, avoidance of a cult of personality, regularized retirement and succession norms, and limited governance reforms aimed at allowing citizens a certain degree of voice into the system. These are all now going under. Some are secular trends. Economically, China is slowing. It's exiting its period of rapid growth, just as Taiwan and uh, Japan did before it. Other shifts are political in nature. Since the early 2000s, Chinese authorities themselves have turned against many of the limited governance reforms that they themselves had introduced in an earlier era. Uh, village elections, uh, partially commercialized media that citizens had used to air grievances, and so on. And while many of these trends go back a ways to the early 2000s, they've become particularly clear since 2012, as Xi Jinping has pushed to dismantle a number of those partially institutionalized norms which had developed since the early 1980s, replacing collective leadership, for example, with a more personalized authoritarian rule. So many people view China as a rising competitor to the United States, and they point, of course, to its massive economy, its growing technological prowess, and its use of development finance to spread Chinese influence. And how do you reconcile this perception, perception with your analysis? That's a great question. And part of it really depends whether you're looking at internal or external issues. It's completely possible to have a country that both exerts significant influence abroad and at the same and leads in many fields, while at the same time it uh, has deep internal, social, institutional, and political problems festering at home that eventually lead to the rising internal turmoil or, or loss of political influence abroad. For example, if you look at the uh, external manifestations of Soviet power in the 1970s, you see a military giant, you see a technological leader in many in space research, uh, and that can lead you to miss out on uh, internal. Economic 
economic problems that are building within the system. If you only look at the external manifestations of U.S. power in the 90s and early 2000s, you see the world's largest economy, you see a military superpower capable of waging multiple wars at the same time, and that can lead you to miss out on the rise of domestic political problems, increasing inequality, erosion of our own political institutions in the form of gerrymandering that eventually build to the rise of uh, the Tea Party and Trump and the problems currently confronting us in America. The same is true in China. Right now, everyone is focused on the bright, shiny exterior uh, manifestations of power and influence, but there are deep problems that are building within the system. At the 13th National People's Congress, which took place uh, in March, uh, the Chinese announced a major government restructuring plan um, and some new institutions uh, along with it. And some people argue that these institutions are becoming increasingly uh, authoritarian. So how does this development affect China's rise on the global stage? One sort of might not paint some of those uh, reforms as a step to institutionalization. I think you actually have to look at it as an erosion of uh, some of those uh, late 20th century norms and institutions. Remember that one of those other key reforms of the sort of early reform era, late 70s, early 1980s, was that the party decided to retreat from the day-to-day management of the affairs of state. Uh, So they handed over Party leaders continued, of course, to control the commanding heights of uh, the state, of, of, of the government, uh, but responsibility for day-to-day management of the, uh, of the economy, of you know, the affairs of government were, were handled over to technocrats within government, uh, the bureaucracy. And one of the key things that we're seeing right now, for example, the, new, uh, the, the new, newly announced government reorganization plan, is that party institutions are reabsorbing uh, the, the state bureaucracy, so the state civil, society, civil service organization organization is being absorbed by the Party Organization Bureau. The Religious Affairs Bureau is being uh, absorbed by the Party's United Front Organization and so on. And I think that's a that's a direct reversal of another one of those key early reform era practices. It's sort of a repartyization of uh, the bureaucracy. Um, I think one of the key implications of that when people are thinking about the manifestation of China's power abroad is to recognize that the entire technocratic governance narrative that people now associate with China and its ability to deploy power successfully both domestically and at home, it's an artifact of that technocratic rule. And what I worry about is as you start to see that repartyization of the bureaucracy, you see the undermining of Deng Xiaoping's decentralization of power. Uh, you see an undermining of that willingness to, to tolerate different different views. And I really worry that that starts to affect the ability of China's author- Chinese authorities themselves to exercise power effectively. The, the technocratic flexibility that had characterize the early areas, I think, at risk of going under as well. So an example of this sort of reversal of institutionalization that you mentioned um, is is uh, the recent move to end presidential term limits uh, in, in China. And we now have the potential, at least, that Xi Jinping will remain in power beyond his second five-year term, and some people even think uh, for life. Uh, so what is this um, end to the uh, create the uh, leadership succession practices that took place that was that were created by Deng Xiaoping. Uh, what does this mean for economic and social progress in China? Absolutely, and let me just I'll loop in my response here to one of your earlier questions. I think you're at you're 
totally correct that the removal of the constitutional term limits on Xi Jinping's role as president is a clear signal that he's likely to stay on for much longer than his predecessors, essentially for life, breaking another one of those reform era norms. Uh, and that's totally consistent with this trend towards recentralizing power in the hands of a single individual person. And so if we summarize like what's going on with this, as well as what we were just talking about with respect to the party bureaucracy, the party is reabsorbing the state and a single individual is reabsorbing the power that had previously been concentrated and exercised by institutions such as the Politburo Standing Committee. And so what's the effect of that going to be on economic and social progress? And I know the story that many people who are are fascinated with the concept of technocratic rule like to tell. They like to say that if you put all the power in the hands of a single individual, he'll make all the right decisions. But I, I think that's actually a recipe for really bad decision making. Once you have power concentrated in the hands of one person, uh, people below start to become increasingly fearful about presenting bad results to the top leader, uh, or they start to fly off half cocked in order to implement some kind of random comment that the person has made uh, with regard to you know, a policy suggestion. Uh, and that isn't, an abstract, isn't just an abstract concern. I think it's actually what happened in the 2015 stock market bubble, for example, uh, where the state authorities decided that they were going to talk up the stock market, uh, leading into an unsustainable bubble that it eventually uh, popped. And so I really worry that that that's a, an example of how, as you increasingly move towards an increasingly centralized system, you start to lose some of that flexibility, you start to lose some of the pragmatism, you start to lose some of that technocratic sheen that people have come to associate with China over the last couple decades, and you start to see a revival of some of the policy problems that had plagued the pre-1978 period. You write a lot about the personality of leadership, especially Xi Jinping, but of course there are other personalities and people who are very close to Xi Jinping uh, that I think can have a potential influence on some policies going forward. One of those people um, is Liu He. Uh, the top economic advisor to Xi Jinping. And many of people have seen him as a reformist, uh, of course, educated in the United States, uh, and in, in the past has written quite a bit about the need for fundamental economic reform in China. So given the fact that he really is uh, close to Xi Jinping, what impact do you think he will have on China's trajectory going forward? So, I mean, of course, I can't completely foreclose the possibility that, you know, you get the right person in this, in this in all change, good change happens. But for me, I, I keep in the back of my head when I when I hear that, I think of the story people were telling about Li Keqiang back in 2012, where, OK, here is the, you know, the, the Western educated uh, or the you know PhD in economics, I, I think, who sort of had all these great ideas and boy, everything's going to move in the right direction. And so I'm, I'm kind of suspicious of that narrative on the one hand. Just as I mentioned, I sort of think that that environment tends to constrain the options of any individual uh, because they're overarching concerns that sort of limit that. And the second is I do think that in this new era, stability maintenance, you know, the idea of not having bad things happen at this moment, you know, that has led to sort of stimulus after stimulus on the economic front. And so one of the questions is, could you actually start to see Chinese leaders begin to ad address some of those deep latent economic issues, even if it's going to generate real pain in terms of the closure of factories, in terms of the shutdown of, of, of industries. And I, I really sense this, this, this hesitancy to hit that, uh, that, that, that button precisely because of that fear of, you know, that very deep fear about latent social unrest. You explain that the negative effects of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign have included increased capital flight and ineffective leadership. 
And in March, the Chinese government created the National Supervision Commission as an anti-corruption agency uh, that's aimed at essentially institutionalizing this campaign that Xi Jinping has been pursuing since he became a leader at the end of 2012. So do you think that this new commission is going to reduce or exacerbate these effects. I mean, certainly the hope is this turns into an institution that can sort of more effectively address latent uh, latent corruption within within the within the Chinese system. Uh, I think you s- still you're going to face the classic problem of who supervises the supervisor. You charge this body body with supervising officials who, at the end of the day, is going to watch it to make sure it doesn't become a corrupt. I think the other element to focus on with respect to the the, the supervision commission is consistent with that earlier theme of the repartization of the bureaucracy. This is a remodeled version of the party's disciplinary inspection committee, which is charged not only with addressing corruption, but also maintaining monitoring political loyalty of towards the center. And this new body is going to be charged not only with going after party officials, but also with anyone who receives a state salary. That includes SOE employees. It also includes academics, professors, and the like. And so one of the worries that I would have about the the new body is, does this start to spread some of those black box norms that existed within the party even deeper within the state apparatus and, for example, start to shut down discourse even more deeply within academic institutions? So even as China has consolidated authoritarianism, it continues to seek greater recognition um, and and more influence, not just in the region, but globally. And I wonder whether you think that this is contradictory. And will China's authoritarianism at home, the reversal of reforms, undermine its ability really to succeed on the global stage? Do other countries care about the fact that China is increasingly um, uh, an authoritarian uh, country that uh, is cracking down on, uh, on, on so many um, developments at home, access to information, uh, the ability to air different opinions, even shutting down uh, views that are expressed on WeChat. Um, does all of this matter? I mean, I think that's a really good question. And so, you know, sadly to say, I mean, I think there would have been an era 10, 15, 20 years ago where I would have been able to be more confident and to say that for the American government, this is something that we really is a top priority and we're really concerned about. I'm unfortunately in this era when I'm looking at the U.S. government, I'm less able to say that this is a top priority for us, both because um, of, you know, we're flirting with authoritarian regimes in, in a way that we haven't done before. And um, and I think we have currently there are many other priorities for the White House. And I, I'm just not so sure that this is a top issue for the for 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 the the state itself as much as a normatively I wish, might wish it to be. But there is another element, and that's society. It's really important to realize that the post-1978 engagement strategy where the the there was a broad coalition within U.S., not just government, but also society at large, businesses, uh, academic institutions, civil society groups, who sort of thought that the possibility that China would open up, that there was space to address things that they cared about, which did coincide with all those things that you mentioned, there was this hope that, you know, we can, we're going to 
it's going to be a one-party system, but there's still going to be space for us to do business, for us to sort of address environmental issues and the like. And one of the artifacts of the closing of these things, as China becomes more increasingly authoritarian, is that that group of people, that coalition is breaking down. You've seen this with business interest in the United States, where they're suddenly starting to say, well, wait a minute, industrial policy, pressure to give the party cells more influence within our, within our, uh, within our businesses. And what that's doing is leading to sort of this group of people, this broader group that might have supported a more, you know, or more friendly approach to China, they're going dark. And so I think that's beginning to have direct ramifications for China's ability to engage successfully on the world stage because you're getting pushback, you're getting negative feelings that are extending much more widely in society. It's not just a government thing. I want to drill down a little bit on the issue of the U.S. role. So White House spokesperson Sarah Sanders uh, when asked about how the U.S. reacted to the uh, elimination of term limits for China's president, said that President Trump believes that Beijing's decision to remove these presidential term limits was up to China. Is that a very unusual thing for a position for the United States to take? You know, if we had a different president, um, what else could have been said under President Obama, or if we had had uh, President Clinton, uh, would would the position have been different? Um, you know, that's 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 an interesting question, and you start phrasing it in that particular way, which is not specifically about human rights, but it's specifically about sort of you know the internal practices within the party. I'm not entirely sure about what would they have said in response to that particular. Uh, question. I suspect there might have been something to said about, you know, we, we hope that China continues to evolve along a more, uh, you know, reformist direction. And in, in reality, you know, this seems to be taking China further away from the direction that, you know, Chinese citizens themselves had hoped that the system might evolve to. You could, you could phrase it in a way where you're, you're, you're just making it clear that this direction seems to be opposed to where Chinese leaders themselves had hoped. The 1980, look, the, the, those, those term limits that were, impo- that were adopted in the Constitution in 1982 were a direct response to the Cultural Revolution, where China itself was seeking to move away from you know, one man rule. And now these are being lifted. You could have imagined uh, sort of a, a White House that would be at least willing to sort of say something in that regard, but not now. So what do you think it would take for China to return to the path of really reforming and opening up that marked the Deng Xiaoping era? Is it would the trigger be something domestic? Is it a crisis? Um, I assume international pressure is probably not going to do it. I think you're correct about the international pressure. It's hard, hard for me to see. I mean, there's been this idea that, well, if we just outside say these are core issues in the in the in the Chinese evolution of the Chinese political system. Xi Jinping is not going to be, you know, some protest or something by foreigners. I don't think that's going to have a direct uh, impact. The, the big picture is, I, I think, to answer that question, you have to think back to why China itself launched the reform and opening up. And that was because they perceived they were coming out of the Cultural Revolution. They saw fundamental problems develop within their system that scared the heck out of them. Uh, And so as sad as it may be to recognize, I sort of feel that may be It's only when the problems really start to crop up internally that Chinese authorities themselves will say, we've got to go in a different direction. And what those problems are, how that that you have to almost get that sense of crisis where people say, we need to address this and we have to do something different. So finally, you argue in your book that China is at a dangerous turning point. 
What do you think are these signposts or indicators that observers should look for that would indicate that we are approaching a tipping point? So that's a really that's a really good question, and I'm really worried because I actually already think I'm seeing things slide. Um, when we're talking about the norms that are being broken, these are not just abstract things. These are fundamental political norms that were established after 1978. A collective rule by a party elite is giving rise to a more personalized authoritarian system. A whiff of a cult of personality is beginning to envelop the top leader again, and, and so on. So I'm really worried because I, I think I see things already starting to go. But I do think there are at least two norms that people should watch that still haven't been broken. The first is mass movements. There have been zero sign that China's top leader has any intention to call out people onto the streets to attack his enemies of the day. That was a characteristic, regular characteristic of the Maoist era that was repudiated with Deng's rise. There's been no sign that Xi Jinping uh, wants to bring that back. If there was, if that one was to start to go and you saw rally sessions and streets attacking disloyal local cadres, that were refusing to follow central directives. That's the hurricane warning sign where you really got to be, you know, deeply concerned. Uh, the second norm that I'll flag is an ideological pivot back to or towards uh, a much more extreme ethno-nationalist narrative in state media. Remember that for all of the patriotic education stuff that's going on in the schools right now, China is still a technically Marxist-Leninist state with pictures of a German socialist, uh, That and the state media is still rhetorically invoking the concept of harmonious minorities and equality of religion. You could imagine a system where that starts to go away, where party and state power starts to become much more explicitly identified with a single race or a single religion, and things start getting targeted as foreign or disloyal. Uh, and so I think that's something to watch, too. On that point, I would particularly think you want to watch for this new push for national security education uh, in schools. I think you want to look at the mass detentions that are starting to take place in, uh, in, in Xinjiang, where you're getting some 5% of the entire Uyghur population being rotated through political uh, education camps. And you want to look at the new pressures that are beginning to mount on religious groups. I think I see some threads in there that really worry me. Uh, so those would be the two things I would watch going forward. Well, I hope that our listeners um, are going to buy and read your book because all of this is so fascinating. What's going on in China is just, uh, it, it, it's a very complicated period and I think we all need to understand it uh, better. So thank you, Carl Minzner, who's author of End of an Era, How China's Authoritarian Revival is Undermining Its Rise. Thanks for being on China Power Podcast. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Appreciate it.